Well, it's a real privilege to be here this morning with all of you, and it was really, it's always encouraging to hear testimonies, to see what God has done in the lives of His children. And for Dave, it's even, you know, even more stirring to my heart, it even brings maybe a little bit more joy just to, I get to see him every week. I saw him from the beginning when he started coming to CCF, and just to watch how the Word of God has changed his life, how the Word of God's really growing him into a mature man. When he, when he first came to Cornerstone, when he first came to CCF, I didn't really know if he was a believer. Just how he talked about the Bible, his, his understanding of the Bible was, was really shallow. Sorry, Dave. But just to see in like eight months how God has changed his heart, God has really illuminated his mind to understand the text, understand Scripture. And even from the very beginning, you know, even when he came, he had a hunger to know the Word. He wanted to know God's Word. And we praise the Lord that God just continues to draw people to Himself. For these thousands of years, the Gospel is continually going forth and is regenerating the hearts of men. And so we're praying for you, brother. Look forward to seeing how God will use you in the future. How He will magnify His name through you. So we're praying for you. Well, Bob shared, you know, about... Shepherd's Conference, and I wanted to, I was thinking if there was something funny I could share, some funny story, some anecdote, but I couldn't think of anything, so. But, you know, what I did think of is, you know, I used to, I wanted to join the military really bad, maybe about five years ago, for a few years, wanted to be in the military, just something about, you know, just getting beat up and running till you're sick and doing push-ups, climbing ropes, jumping out of planes. That I love to think about that. I wanted to do that. Um, but the Lord didn't call me to that. But He did call me to a ministry, a spiritual ministry that does all of those things. And I think about you know, not being able to climb underneath the barbed wire and climb under the mud, but the world is like that. And ministry is like that. Ministry is climbing. It's swimming through the mud and the muck of the world, the spiritual darkness and the depravity. And so this weekend with these brothers, I thought of it that way, and just with these men, and I'm, we're on the front lines together, we're fighting the good fight, we're pressing on towards the goal, we're getting shot at, even some fall to the side. And we pray none from Cornerstone would, but we're in that kind of a battle, spiritual battle. And so we're in the Lord's army, aren't we? We're in a fight for the truth, we're in a fight for the faith. We see some around us that they lived for Christ for a while. They were in the battle, but then they, they fell by the wayside. I want to read to you a letter that I received. While I was in the Czech Republic, I received a, a response to an email that I had sent to one young man whom I was shepherding, spending time with, discipling him. And this is what he wrote back to me as I was asking him how he was doing with Christ, how he was, his walk with the Lord was. This is a piece of his four-page response. He writes, I'm not a Christian anymore. Man, that's hard to say. The words always catch in my throat, and I have to force them out. So what am I, an ex-Christian? I know the term makes no sense to Christians. Once a Christian, always a Christian, right? Once you're saved, there's no going back. I know. The only alternative Christians allow is that I never was saved. I guess I'm still searching. I mentioned my interest in biology and ecology. Therein lies my passion. I believe in science. I believe in life. I don't know how it got there. I don't know how I got here. Created or evolved. Either one you have to take on faith. I put my faith in life and its progression. I believe in freedom of thought. Education. I believe in reason. Truth is discovered by reason. It follows then that I don't believe in superstition, for it disarms reason, and from it comes all kinds of evil, fear, oppression, pride, injustice, hate, discord. Christianity is one of many forms of superstition. That is why unity and peace can never result from it, unless perhaps everyone believes in it, but that would preclude free thought. And even Christians wouldn't want the entire world to be saved. They wouldn't feel special if that were the case. They wouldn't be the chosen, 
the called, the royal priesthood, the elect. They'd just be like everyone else. And that's really the root of Christianity, in my opinion. Pride. Self-flattery. He continues, Christianity is like something that someone just made up. And that's all I think of Christianity, to be frank. A system made up of spoiled, scared children. A lie that makes us feel special and therefore entices us to believe. It can offer no proof of its truth. He goes on some more like that. And he ends, well, enough of my preaching. Forgive me if I've offended you. As you can see, I now believe in the untruth of Christianity as passionately as I once believed in its truth. It's been a strange journey and one that's not over yet. And then he concludes finally, hey, if you want to use this in a Bible study, feel free. Maybe it will provide some insight about the psychology of ex-Christians or non-Christians, if you prefer. At the very least, I hope it raised some questions that all of us, Christian or not, should ask ourselves. Alternately, feel free to use it as a dartboard. Take care, Marcus. Your friend still, Dave. Well, I, when I read that letter, I was really in shock. I really didn't know, you know what to do. And I just, I turned off my computer. I remember I spent some time praying for that man. Just praying for his soul. Praying for his heart. Just my heart broke for him as he just turned aside from the truth and he ridiculed Christ. In his letter to me, he put some bibliographies of some of the books that he'd been reading as he was on his journey of faith. One of these biographies, bibliographies was a work by Johann Semler. Johann Semler is known as the father of German rationalism. He inherited such a name by his supposed feats, quote, He was the first to reject with sufficient proof the equal value of the Old and New Testaments, the uniform authority of the parts of the Bible, the divine authority of the traditional canon of Scripture, the inspiration and supposed correctness of the texts of the Old and New Testaments, and generally the identification of revelation with Scripture. Incredible. In other words, he is the first man to prove that the Bible is a lie. He's the first man to prove to us that the Bible is falsehood. He is the first man to prove that the Bible is just a large book of fairy tales. That's who Johann Sommer was. And this is one of the men that helped my friend learn the lies of Christianity. That Christianity is not true. Well, I, when my heart breaks for these circumstances, these situations, at the same time my heart praises God for these situations, for even men like this. Because men like this fulfill the prophecies of the Bible. They fulfill prophecies that liars and false teachers will rise up. They fulfill prophecies that men will exchange the truth of God for the lies of men. Men like these fulfill the prophetic word that men will not endure sound doctrine. And Paul himself knew that such men would rise up to attack the truth of God's Word. He likewise knew that only faithful men would be able to pass on the torch, would be able to relay the truth of God's Word. And that's what the Shepherds' Conference was. It was just a magnificent passing on of the torch. And these men got up there and preached the Word and reminded us of the battle that we're in, reminded us that men are going to fall by the wayside that the truth of God will be perverted, that the truth of Scripture will be exchanged for a lie. And I've seen that firsthand, and Paul saw that firsthand. Some of you have seen that firsthand, even your own friends. They've turned Christ away, and they've braced lies. And that was what was going on at Corinth. False teachers infiltrated the church. They, they, they stole the way into Paul's children, to Paul's spiritual children, his sheep. And they were preaching lies. They were preaching false doctrines to the church. They were perverting the truth. And the result was that the Corinthians were turning their back on Christ. They were turning their back on Paul. In 2 Corinthians 11, verse 4, Paul writes to the Corinthians, For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, when we have not preached, 
Or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted. You bear this beautifully. Simply accepting another gospel, another Jesus, whom Paul was not preaching. This is the exact same thing that Paul says to the Galatians. I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. They use the name Jesus even. They preach another Jesus. But it's not the Christ of Scripture. In 2 Timothy 1.15, he says, You are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me. Asia Minor, Ephesus. The church that Paul planted with his own sweat, his own blood, his own prayers, his own preaching, they're turning their back on him. But the Apostle Paul, he couldn't just brush his hands off and say that's too bad and just move on. Paul's ministry didn't really just consist of preaching the gospel and then moving on despite how people responded to it. Because the gospel, it gives birth to men. The gospel gives birth to the souls of men and women from the dead. It brings them to life. But when, you, when, they, when they come to life, they're infants, they're babies, they're children. And they need to be taught the Word of God. And they need to be grown up. And so, Paul's motto wasn't just, woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. That wasn't enough for him. It wasn't enough just to preach the gospel and move to the next town. His motto wasn't just, I preach the gospel, but it's, we proclaim Him, admonish every man, and teach every man with all wisdom, in order that we may present every man complete in Christ. How long was this task? For this purpose I labor according to His power which mightily worked within me. Night and day, constantly laboring, praying, petitioning, preaching the Word in season and out. Because just sharing the Gospel wasn't enough. And Paul, he bore this massive weight of concern for the churches because of these very instances. Because of the letter my friend wrote, experiencing the pressures, experiencing... God, how can this happen? How can this young man that I prayed with, that I ministered with, how can he turn away and reject you and call me the things he called me? I remind us again, the burden of ministry, even Paul's excruciating that he endured in ministry. He says later on in chapter 11, verse 28, apart from such external things, the beatings, the hunger, the, the shipwrecks, the starving. Apart from those external things, there's the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. To remind you again, that word concern, it's not just, oh, I'm, I'm concerned about you, but it's I have this agonizing weight, this burden in my soul, Paul says, this heavy, tremendous, tumultuous pressure on my shoulders for the, the saints of God, for the church. Well, the letter of 2 Corinthians is not often given the theme apostleship defended for no reason. Because Paul defends his apostleship. He defends his authority throughout the letter. But I think that it's more than just his apostleship defended for the sake of his authority. This isn't just a struggle between elders at a church. This isn't just a struggle between the Catholic church and the Eastern Orthodox Church. It's not a struggle for hierarchical power. It's far greater than that. That Paul's struggle with his apostleship, the rejection of Paul's apostleship, is the rejection of Christ Jesus as Lord. That Paul preached the one true gospel along with other apostles. And in this church, Paul's battling false apostles who were preaching another gospel. And so as Paul struggles... And fights for his apostleship. He's fighting for the souls. My friend, he said, Christians are scared children. They're superstitious men seeking to make themselves feel good through a self-centered message. Those are the things that we are fighting today, even from within the very church itself. And those things that were pointed even to me, it was not really rejecting me, it was rejecting Christ. Likewise for Paul. Paul and we, ourselves, we are in a battle for the truth. 
And this battle, it has eternal consequences. It's not merely another, it's not a war in Iraq. This isn't a battle with guns, bullets. The battle which losers will not be merely just buried in the ground, but whose losers will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. A battle to which the winner and loser is described in the very last verse in Isaiah. Listen to this. Very last verse of Isaiah. Then they will go forth, the victorious ones, they will go forth and look on the corpses of men who have transgressed against me. For their worm will not die and their fire will not be quenched and they will be an abhorrence to all mankind. That's the outcome of the battle of truth. And all week, hearing these messages and even this this weekend, even this morning, I'm constantly confronted with my own numbness to the Word of God. I'm, I'm confronted with my own insensitivity to the truth. I hear the Word, but it doesn't penetrate my heart. It doesn't have the effect I know it should have. And I know that that is the same for many of you this morning. That we come Sunday after Sunday and we, we have our quiet times and we read the Word of God and we're constantly fighting to allow or to cry out that the Word of God would permeate our hearts, that it would take away the coldness, that shroud that covers it and just leaves us blind and numb to the truth. And so I know that I preached that this morning. Many of you are numb. Many of you still don't get it. And I know that I'm with you. And that's my prayer this morning to the Word. It would, it would melt us from our numbness. It would remind us again of the battle that we're in, this battle for the souls of men. And so I want to share this morning from Colossians, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 4, some, maybe some heat waves that would melt our hearts, remind us again of the truth, remind us again of the spiritual battle, remind us again of our need to be on the forefront, the 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 fighting lines of bringing the truth of the gospel to those that are in darkness. Three realities of what it means to be a Christ-beholding child of God. Three simple actions all Christians must engage in in this fight for truth. Number one, Christians defend the truth. Christians defend the truth. Look what Paul says there, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Therefore, since we have received this mercy, this ministry, as you have received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adultering the Word of God, but by manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Alright, due to, due to the, the depth of this book, you're going to have to trust me just for a few moments. I don't have time to go. You know, My struggle here is there's a therefore, okay? Chapter 4, verse 1, therefore. What do we do with the therefore? We've got to go back and find out what Paul's talking about. But to go through all that, that's another sermon. So just trust me this morning. Therefore refers to Paul's new covenant ministry of grace. The therefore is referring that, that Paul is a minister of the, uh, the sufficiency of Jesus Christ for the salvation of the souls of men. The finished work of Jesus versus the false teacher's condemning ministry of the false teachers who are proclaiming salvation through a false gospel by works. Okay, that was a mouthful of words. Just very simply, that therefore refers to the truth of the gospel versus the lies of the false teachers. That's the therefore. So in light of Paul's receiving this ministry of mercy, he says, therefore we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. But we look at that and think, well, Paul's talking, oh, in the midst of this battle, he's not getting discouraged and he's not, you know, he's not getting down on himself. He's not getting, you know, discouraged and emotional instability. But that's not what he's saying. The word that lose heart, it really literally means to behave badly or to give in to evil or to lose courage. When he says to lose heart. One commentator says that it is the faint-hearted coward. means he turns to evil and perversion because of the cost of remaining in the truth. So Paul says, in the midst of this battle, despite the casualties, despite the afflictions on me, I don't lose heart. 
And I'm bringing the gospel boldly. And Paul, he openly rebuked those who turned aside, who were cowards. He says in 2.17, For we are not like the many, peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God we speak in Christ in the sight of God. So I want to rattle off here under this first point. How do Christians defend the truth? Christians defend the truth, firstly, they renounce things hidden because of shame. We defend the truth by renouncing the things that are hidden because of shame. We renounce the things hidden because of shame, Paul says. To renounce something means to speak out against it, to uncover it for what it is, to expose it. And that is exactly what Paul and the rest of the new covenant ministers were doing. They were exposing the perverting of the gospel. If you want to defend the truth, you must be willing to confront falsehood. Very simply. If you want to be defending the truth, you must be willing to confront those that are in darkness. You must be willing, so to speak, you must be willing to call a spade a spade. And we heard that this weekend. MacArthur, he was bold. He was brass and calling out men who were false teachers. He was bold in, in pointing out the books that are just prevalent today that people are reading so-called Christian books. Well, we must be bold as well when we hear of others who are perhaps in churches where the Gospel... We must go in and we speak with them, share the truth with them. We must defend the worthiness of Christ more than the salvation of sinners. Let me say that again. We must be willing to defend the worthiness of Christ more than the salvation of sinners. Our, our motivation of sharing the Gospel isn't just is secondary. Salvation of the souls of men is secondary to the preaching of the Gospel. The priority of the preaching of the Gospel is the glory of Christ. We preach Christ no matter what the response is. We preach the glory of God. We preach Christ Jesus. That's our first motivation. But secondly, in that, we long for the souls of men to be saved. And so we tell Christians that are perhaps being deceived, or we, we tell people that think they're Christians, that are deceived, we tell them the truth. We renounce the things hidden because of shame. And you must also be renouncing anything that is hidden in your own life, anything an unbeliever can use against you. That's what Paul is saying. There's nothing in our lives that they can point out. There's nothing that they can say about us. He says in, Chapter 1, verse 12, our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and in godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially towards you. So Paul lived this holy life and therefore he could rebuke and he could preach with confidence. Secondly, Christians defend truth by not walking in craftiness. We don't walk in craftiness. A crafty person is just one who seeks to deceive another. Seeking to deceive other people. He says in chapter 11, verse 3, I'm, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Now, Paul reminds us the Gospel is very simple. The truth of Scripture, the truth of what Christ has done is very simple to understand. Uh, men want to pervert it and deceive us. And Paul says, I preach the, the simplicity of Christ and Him crucified. So we must as well be those who clarify the gospel, make it very clear. Thirdly, we are those that do not adulterate the Word of God, as Paul did not. He did not adulterate the Word of God. America is the the hotbed is the birthplace of cults. You know, all the cults in America, they're all, you know, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, all these cults, they start here and they go out and they corrupt the rest of the world. And we live in this nation that gives birth to these places. And because of that, because they're everywhere, because they're constantly knocking on our doors, because they're knocking on our neighbor's doors, we have an obligation. We have an obligation to destroy the falsehood. We have an obligation to confront them. We have an obligation to go to our neighbors and say, you know what? What you heard was not true. Here's the truth. We have an obligation, therefore, all of us to be apologists. 
We have an obligation to be defenders of the faith, defenders of the truth of God. We must be, as 1 Timothy 3.15 says, but sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts, always ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you with gentleness and reverence. I just want to encourage you this morning. Scripture memorization, it's not for Awanas, okay? Scripture memorization isn't just for your children. Scripture memorization is not just for Sunday school. Scripture memorization is the sword of the Spirit that we must have in our minds, in our hearts, always ready, always prepared to use the Word of God in battle. If I asked you this morning, if I asked you just right now, and I'll pick some of you maybe. I won't do that. Okay? Maybe defend the sinlessness of Christ, okay? Defend the sinlessness of Christ. Defend that Christ is the only means of salvation. How about justification by faith alone when you're talking with someone who thinks they can work themselves to salvation? How about faith without works being dead? How about the authority of Scripture? Are you ready to defend those things? Are you equipping yourself personally? Are you girding your minds for action? Are you personally taking ownership of your responsibility to defend the Gospel? That is a responsibility of Christians. And Christians defend the truth Thirdly, by the manifesting the truth. By manifesting the truth. Paul here even refers back to the Corinthians, reminding them, look what the gospel has done in your lives. Remember 1 Corinthians 6, 9, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, thieves, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. He says, such were some of you. That's the power of the gospel. Such were some of you. And Paul reminds them with their own lives, manifesting the truth. Look at the gospel has done in your lives. And Paul himself, he manifested the truth. He lived out the truth. And I think he clarifies that even more. Fifthly, Christians defend the truth by commending themselves in the sight of every man's conscience. Christians defend the truth by commending themselves in the sight of every man's conscience. I think there's two things here. One is Paul defends himself in the Gospel saying, we have lived rightly before all men. We've lived rightly before all men. We're commending ourselves to you, he says. Commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. The word commend literally means to, to stand up with, to stand before. And Paul's standing up before men. He's standing before them before their conscience, it did two things. It proved his integrity, first of all. But secondly, it forced all men who came in contact with him to react to Christ. Let me say that again. Paul commending himself to men, it forced others to react to Jesus Christ. Paul lived such a life that when others came in contact with him, they were forced to respond to Christ. You know, Paul was, Paul was into making people feel uncomfortable, so to speak. He wasn't so much, he wasn't desirous just of their comfort. The gospel is a ministry, first of all, it's a ministry of uncomfortability. To share the gospel means telling people they're sinners. And that God abhors their sinful rebellion. And that their sin-stained life will be judged for all eternity in hell. Okay? That is not a comfortable message for the hearer, nor is it a comfortable message for the preacher. And I say that honestly for me. You know, for the preacher to stand up here, even this weekend we heard constantly reminded of the eternal damnation of the soul of the sinner. And I hear that, even as a Christian, I'm constantly, I'm offended by that. I'm put on edge. I grip my teeth, even to say it. But the world, you know, even the, the church today, they want to water down. They want to deal away with the eternal damnation of sinners. And the reality of why they do that isn't because they, have, they feel this mercy 
or often compassion for the sinner, but it's because it hurts their own heart. Because it makes them feel so uncomfortable. But the gospel ministry, is, it's a ministry of uncomfortableness. Bringing the gospel face to face with people. The reality of, of the eternal punishment of the sinner is to be a motivation for us. To bring the gospel. To plead with people. And that's what Paul's life did. You know, I like in, I like in Peter Smith, somewhat to Paul. Peter Smith, he has a ministry of presence. You know what I mean? Like, you know, when, you know when Peter's there. You guys met him at the retreat. You know when you're at the table, you know, watching him this summer. He was at the table, and everyone around him is just captivated. They're all listening in. Their ears are intently listening to him. And they're listening to his stories. And it's the same way with unbelievers. They're constantly captivated by him. He commends himself to them. And he forces people that come in contact with him to make a decision for Christ. He forces them to have a response. He either fills you with joy, he makes you want to love God more, or he makes you want to leave. He makes you want to get as far away from him as possibly can. And I've seen it. We're walking in the street, and there's some Czech guy that we shared the gospel with, and he just, whoosh, just takes a turn. He doesn't want to come forward. Because Peter Smith makes men respond to Christ. Do you have a life like that? Does your life force others? Do you commend yourself to others and it forces them to respond to Christ? It forces them to, to respond. It's an aroma, as Paul said. The aroma from death to death or the aroma from life to life. He finishes out by saying this is done in the sight of God. It's all done in the sight of God. Christians minister in the sight of God. Paul labored in the presence of God. I want to move on though. To be a Christian, engaged in the world, you must defend the truth. We must be defenders of the truth. But secondly, we must realize that we live in a world of unbelief. We live in a world of disbelief, of unbelief. Number two. Look at verses 3 and 4. Paul says, Even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. You know, Satan has a heyday with unbelief. Satan loves unbelief. If the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever, then the chief end of Satan is to de-glorify God and belittle Him forever. Maybe that's Satan's motto. His greatest joy is to belittle Christ. His greatest joy is to deceive people. His greatest joy is to turn away others and deceive them and blind them from seeing Christ Jesus. My favorite hymn, Mighty Fortress, Luther pens, For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. To Seek to work us over. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not as equal. Satan is ruthless. Satan is ruthless in his ploys and his plots to to blind men. In chapter 11, 13 and 14, Paul writes... These are false apostles. Such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Satan desires to steal the souls of men. He blinds them that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Satan blinds men from seeing Christ for who, they, for who He really is. He blinds men from seeing Christ for who He really is. The Gospel is light. It sheds light on the reality of who men are, of what is inside them. 
What did Christ say in John 8.12? I'm the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Christ, He is the He's the illuminator of the soul. He's the illuminator of the heart. He reveals the depravity and enslavement. You know, I liken it. Christ, the gospel, it's like a spiritual x-ray. It's a spiritual x-ray. You know, we see people on the outside and they look fine. They look perfect. Their skin's clear. Their hair's combed. Everything's in order. Straight teeth. Everything's fine. But you put that person behind an x-ray and there can just be devastating cancerous tumors. You know, horrible things that are just just destroying the inward parts of the body. And that's where it starts. You know, cancer starts on the inside and it works its way out. People think they're fine and all of a sudden, they, you know, they feel sick one day. They go to the doctor and the doctor's like, you have terminal cancer. You're going to be dead in a month. Well, with the truth, we're already dead. There's no need for an x-ray. There's no need for assessment. We're already dead. But Christ is our x-ray. And we come to Christ, we come to the illuminator of our soul, and we see the state of our soul. It's corrupt. It's dead. It's full of gangrene. And Christ is the spiritual x-ray. But Satan, he inhibits he seeks to unplug it. He seeks to put out the lights. He seeks to pervert the truth, to, to hinder others from hearing. He seeks to distract them from hearing the gospel. He seeks to put other things in their minds that they'll think about other things rather than listening to the truth, rather than focus on Christ. He distracts them with the things of the world, with thoughts of wealth and thoughts of personal gain, thoughts of lust, thoughts of temporal things that will gain happiness. But when we come to Christ and our soul is revealed, then we see Christ for who He is and we see ourselves for who He is. And look what it is. Look what it is that Satan blinds minds of men. That they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. What is the glory of Christ? What is this that Satan blinds minds men's to? It's that he is the image of God. Satan blinds the minds of men to see that Jesus Christ is God. The image of God means that he is God visible to man. That when we behold Christ, we behold God. What we think of Christ is what we think of God. Wrong Understanding, wrong teaching of Christ is a perversion. It's an idol of God. So if you, if you can change Christ, you change the worship of God. You change the, the truth. And we talked about one Sunday how the Word of God is the antidote to the souls of men. And if the antidote is messed with and injected into the, the body, there's no hope. If the gospel is perverted, there's no hope. We live in a world of unbelief. You know, it's very easy for us. We come to Cornerstone and we we have our flocks. It's very easy for us to forget that the world is just full of hardened disbelief. That people do not believe in God. People do not submit to Christ. And it's not just enough for us to, to shake our heads and say, yes, we live in a world of unbelief, but we must be those who go out and take the truth of the gospel. We must say there's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. We must preach those things. Thirdly, In our fight for truth, Christians reveal the light of Christ. Christians reveal the light of Christ. For we do not preach ourselves, Paul says, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. 
God is the one who gave Paul this ministry of illumination. Paul's final defense here is that they never preached anything that would better themselves or cause anyone to follow them. Paul says, we're servants. We're servants of Christ. We're servants for you. These other men, they enslave you. They devour you. They exalt themselves. They hit you in the face. And Paul says, I'm a servant of Christ for your sake. Dulos, servant, the lowest of the low, the most abject of the five words for slave, the lowest of the low, the one who deals with the trash, the one who deals with all the despicable tasks. Paul says, that's what I am for Christ's sake. And he says this, that I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as our bondservants. Christ Jesus as Lord. Let me remind us of this again. Lord, the kurios. He to whom a person or things belong. That's the kurios. That's the Lord. The Master. A title of honor expressive of respect and reverence with which servants salute their Master. Jesus Christ is Lord. I long for that term to be refreshing to my heart again and yours. That it's just not a, it's just not a name. It's just not His name, but it's who He is. It's His title. And it's a title that deserves and demands a response that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I would, I would say today that we break the third commandment, that we take the name of the Lord our God in vain. That doesn't just mean people that are going around saying, Oh my God! But it means people that use the, the title of the Lord flippantly, without reverence, without awe. Taking His name in vain and speaking of Him as, as if He's not that great, as if He's not near us, if He's not present, if he's, as if we're not speaking to Him right next to us. We need to speak, we need to talk about Christ as if He's right next to us. And Dr. Roscup said one time, Concerning Christ, he said, He is nearer than the skin on my body. That is how near our Lord is. And I think of the times, you know, when we have a special guest speaker and he sits up here and the man that comes up to announce him and he begins to speak very gracious words, exalting words, really. Words that share about the greatness of this man who's going to preach the word to us. Words that, that share this ministry and the power of this man. And we speak to him knowing he's right there hearing it. And that's how we need to speak about Christ. We need to speak Christ Jesus the Lord, but He's not far off. When we worship Him, our praises aren't traveling thousands and thousands of miles away, but Christ is in our midst. He's present with us. And we speak of Him as if He's very near. That Christ is our Lord. That He is the supreme controller, the supernatural ruler over all. you remember the song? It's one of my favorites. His name is wonderful. His name is wonderful. His name is wonderful. Jesus, my Lord. He is the mighty King, Master of everything. His name is wonderful. Jesus, my Lord. We preach Christ as Lord. We preach Christ as Lord. And Paul concludes, For the God who said, Let light shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. We preach the gospel in the face of Christ. We minister before the Lord. That's why we say that when we share the gospel, first and foremost is the glory of Christ, for the honor of Christ, and secondly, for the souls of men. Paul beheld the glory of Christ in the road to Damascus, and that fueled his heart to live his life for the gospel. And Paul is testifying here that he is the humble means along with other apostles to bring forth the gospel. And God has not brought us to a road to Damascus. We have not beheld him as Paul did, but we behold him in the, in the word of God. And we see God for who he is. We see Christ for who he is through the truth of the scriptures. I want to conclude this morning. I want to apply 
three things this morning. What do we do with Christ Jesus as Lord? How do we apply defending the truth? How do we apply living in a world of unbelief? Number one, we need to proclaim the Lordship of Christ. We need to proclaim the Lordship of Christ. We need to ask people, do you know that Jesus Christ is Lord? That's a good way to get into a gospel conversation. Do you know that Jesus Christ is Lord? And they just look at you, what? What are you talking about? Do you know that Jesus Christ is Lord? May we be a church so moved, so full of belief that Jesus Christ is Lord, that we do something about it. Jesus says, why do you you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Why do you take my name in vain and don't do what I'm telling you to do? We must do something about Jesus Christ as Lord. We must proclaim His Lordship. We must proclaim it immediately, not later. Not after E.T. Not after we feel like it. Not after we go to seminary. Not after you're better friends with the person. Friends with your neighbor. Not after the big guy leaves so you can share with the little guy. You need to proclaim the Lordship of Christ. Secondly, secondly, don't belittle your ministry. Don't belittle your ministry. What do I mean by that? Realize who you are. Realize what you've been entrusted with. Do you realize you're a Christian? You're saved by the grace of God? You know, I'm sure Gary could testify, every one of those men on the USC football team, they're, they're, pr- they're full of pride, they're full of honor in a good way. They're proud of their status to be a, a player. We need to be not puffed up, not prideful. We need to understand that we are those who are in the Lord's army. That God has made us Christians. He's made us servants of the new covenant. Don't belittle your ministry. Don't belittle the gospel. Don't think it's a small thing that the ministry that Christ has entrusted you with. Don't be deceived into thinking that ministry is only missions or only summer teams. Don't be deceived in thinking that being a flock shepherd or being a mom or being a dad or being a full-time employee is somehow less of a platform to proclaim Christ than being a pastor or being a missionary. Don't belittle your ministry. Don't make little lightly of your ministry. Don't belittle the souls of men. Don't go to check and, and beg for people to come to Christ. Don't go to Kazakhstan and boldly proclaim to Christ and then come back here and treat the souls of men as if it's not that big of a deal. Don't belittle the ministry of the Gospel. Don't belittle your ministry. The Lord has entrusted you with the Gospel. Don't bury your, your mina. Don't bury the Gospel in the ground and wait for Christ to come back. That's what I mean. Make much of your life. Make much of the ministry that Christ has given you. Make much of the Gospel. And thirdly, a very specific application. Thirdly, let us lavish and bathe Dale and Joan in prayer. Let us understand the move that they're about to make to go to the Czech Republic for the Gospel. You know, I think that if if we knew this morning that they were going to Iraq, that we would be stirred. We would really say, that is intense. And there would almost just be a, a response to be even more fervent. Okay, but don't belittle their ministry. Don't belittle the ministry in the Czech Republic. Don't belittle and think that what they're doing is, is less and it's not of a great struggle and of a great fight. That what they're going to do they're not going to Central Europe as tourists. They're not going to see ancient artifacts and beautiful cities and structures. They're going to proclaim Christ. They're going to a battle. They're going to a land of darkness. A land where the light of the Gospel of Christ is, is hidden. And so I, I, I petition this morning that we'd make much of them. That we would be fervent in prayer for them that we would encourage them before they leave, 
that we'd honor them and pray for them, pray with them. I pray that that would be our hearts this morning, that we would be those that would behold the glory of Christ, that we would be shaken from our numbness, I would as well, move from complacency, that we would boldly take the gospel to everyone around us making much of Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank You for Your reminders to us. Lord, just constantly reminded of the simplicity of the Bible. It just constantly preaches the same things over and over and over. Turn from sin. Turn from complacency. Don't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And it constantly is uttering the same exhortations. Draw near to Christ. Press on towards the goal. Behold the light of the Gospel. Preach the Word. Lord, a life is just so very simple if we just would let down to those things of turning away from evil and turning towards Christ. Bring the Gospel to bear. God, I pray that we would be those who are in aroma, that we would be those who are commend ourselves in the sight of men, that we would be those that force those around us to respond to Christ, to respond to Jesus. Lord, I know that this morning is inadequate again. And I know that even this morning Satan is working, Lord, to distract through whatever it might be, means, tiredness, fatigue, struggle in listening to the preacher. God, I pray that You would cause the Word to have its efficient effect to bear fruit in the lives of Your Christians, of Your children, that we be soldiers of Christ, Lord, thank You for Your Word. look forward to how we will look back in the days to come and see how You've moved us. God, we pray for Dale and Joan as they seek to move forward as soldiers of Christ, as ministers of the light of the Gospel. We ask You please to embolden them. They would fear no man. That those that come in contact with them would be forced to make a decision. Lord, may we be fervent in prayer. Move Cornerstone from its complacency in prayer. Its complacency of not praying for missions as we ought to pray. Not burdened in prayer for the world as we ought to pray. Not praying with our families. Not praying alone in private. Fervent prayers and petitions. Casting our cares to You. Casting the burdens of the souls of men before You, pleading that You would save them, pleading that You would, you would even use us to be means to preach the Gospel. Lord, we confess to You that we are weak in prayer. Lord, make us fervent. Make us effective. Oh Lord, finally ask that You would cause us to perpetually, continually behold the glory of Christ, the image of God before us, and that that would be our fuel to live for You. I thank you for your word. In your name we pray. Amen.